Hello, and welcome to Judgment Calls. I'm David Levy, director of the Mulch Judicial Institute at Duke Law School. It is such an honor to welcome Judge Diane Wood as our guest today. Judge Wood is visiting Duke as the Bolch Judicial Institute's distinguished judge in residence, which means she is joining some classes, meeting with students, and taking time to talk to me today about her interesting life and amazing career, or should we say careers. Judge Wood, you have been a judge, and for a number of years, the chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Before that, you had a full career as a professor and associate dean at the University of Chicago Law School. And you've held positions in the U.S. Department of State and the Department of Justice, where you were deputy assistant attorney general in the antitrust division. So you've done a lot in your, in your life in the law. Let's start at the beginning. You grew up in New Jersey, uh, but at, at age 16, which was probably a, something of a tender age, your folks moved to Texas and you finished high school in Houston, and then you went on to the University of Texas, where you took both your BA and your law degree at Texas. What drew you to the law? Well, it's a great question, and thank you, of course. It's really a privilege to be here uh, virtually visiting Duke Law School, and I certainly enjoyed my class with the students yesterday, and I'm looking forward to another one. Really, in summary, what drew me to the law was the possibility it gave for engagement in the problems of the time of society. I nearly didn't do it. What I was planning on doing as an undergraduate was going on to graduate school in comparative literature. And I was admitted to a really a very fine, the, the Yale comparative literature program. And what changed me was the summer before I was supposed to start, I was working at Rice University with some economists and political scientists and I would spend my spare time looking at the comparative literature journals. And I became increasingly dismayed at, at what I can only call the esoteric nature of what people were talking about. And I finally thought this just isn't for me. So I told Yale I wasn't coming. They were a little surprised, but uh, it, would, it all worked out for the best because I started law school and I thought, this is it. This is what was missing. That's, it. That's interesting. I think a lot of people feel that way about uh, the study of literature or art. Uh, they love literature, but that doesn't necessarily mean they, they want to be a, a literary critic or um, exactly. a literary scholar. Uh, so after graduation, you clerked for Irving Goldberg on the, on the Fifth Circuit. And uh, the students may not recognize the name, but I certainly do. He was one of the great judges uh, of his time, uh, one of the great civil rights judges in the South. And how did the clerkship come about? That's another great question. Um, when I started law school with this background of comp lit, uh, I was one of those students, maybe some students here are, who knew nothing about the way you go about developing a legal career. I didn't know about working for law firms in the summer, and I certainly didn't know about judicial clerkships. But I did have some very wonderful professors who took the time to kind of point me in the right direction. And one of them in particular, um, suggested that I might be interested in working for Judge Goldberg. So I, you know, I, I compiled a list the way people do even now. My list was probably shorter because we didn't have Oscar. Um, and I applied among other people to Judge Goldberg. And <laughs> one day I was studying for exams at the end of my second year of law school and the phone rang and it was Judge Goldberg calling after I'd applied and said, well, when can you come up to Dallas? And I pretty much said, well, whenever you want me, you know, I'll, I'll be there. So I went to Dallas and interviewed with him. There is one funny story that the people who were then working for him told. Judge Goldberg's judicial assistant was a woman named Thelma. And Thelma did not approve of the fact that I used my maiden name as my surname. So with great fanfare, Thelma had taken my application and thrown it in the wastebasket in front of the law clerks who scrambled over and retrieved it from the wastebasket and then things went on from there. That's pretty funny. And how did you get along with Thelma ultimately? You know, the same as my co-clerks, I, I will say. I, I'm not sure Thelma was a plus on, you know, getting along with others, you know, but but she had worked for the judge for a long time. And it, and it was funny. fine. We were all in the same. That's that's funny. Well, I know you've written about Judge Goldberg, and I know you admired him a great deal. Can, 
Can you speak about his example and, and his effect on you? Because I, I think he was probably one of your main role models as a judge. Am oh, I right about that? Absolutely, yeah. he certainly was. And one of the things I learned from Judge Goldberg um, was the value of preparation. He knew everything about every case he ever heard. And I was frankly just amazed at his memory. We would sit down and talk to him about the cases, <clears throat> you know, and then like the next day or so he'd be out there in the bench. He missed nothing. He was just as smart as could be, but as compassionate as could be a people person from the start to the finish and was the kind of person actually, as was Justice Blackman in a different way, um, or a different style, I would say, but very concerned with the litigants in front of him. He realized it was their case. Well, you mentioned Justice Blackman and that was your next clerkship. So that, that was the following year you went on to the Supreme Court and, and you clerked for, for Justice Blackman. What, what was that like? Well, stylistically, very different from Judge Goldberg. Judge Goldberg would just wander in and out, chat, you know, very gregarious, whereas Justice Blackman was a very organized person. You did things certain ways. You had breakfast with him every morning at eight o'clock, and then you went back to chambers and you wrote bench memos. You wrote everything down, everything. Uh, I became an excellent, what I would have called then typist. Uh, these days, I guess we should call it keyboarding. Uh, but I'm, I'm dynamite on, on that because I wrote so much uh, for the justice. But, but he too was in his own way, a wonderful role model. And how, how would you describe that, the, the Blackman role model? Yeah, um, he was so careful. I mean, with, with the facts and the situation of a case, I, I gave a, I thought about this a lot actually, because you know, academics will write articles about Supreme Court justices, and some of them are lionized, and some of them are thought to be not as distinguished. And a lot of academics did not think that Justice Blackman was among the more distinguished people on the court. In fact, if you look carefully, you see the same criticism was raised against Justice O'Connor. They both, I think, were more concerned about developing the law a step at a time than they were about taking a grand theoretical construct and wedging each case under one part or another of that construct. And yeah. I, I attributed that to Justice Blackmun's mathematical and um, scientific background. Mathematical, summa cum laude graduate from Harvard in math for his undergraduate career and medical his years at the Mayo Clinic. He really wanted the data to drive the decision. Yeah, Justice Blackman is, uh, was one of those justices who was appointed by a Republican president, and he came on the court, um, and people assumed he would be conservative. But over time, uh, he shifted, the court shifted, and he found himself, uh, I think what is fairly described as the liberal wing of the court. And he was probably in transition during the time uh, you clerked for him. He'd written Roe v. Wade in the early 70s, and uh, he had begun to move away from the Chief Justice, who had been a the Chief Justice Berger, who'd been his very close friend. Uh, were you were you sort of aware of that as you, as as a law clerk, this transition that was occurring? Well, I certainly remember when, I, unlike what people do these days, when I applied to the Supreme Court, I did not just apply to all of the justices. Some of them were well known for never taking women to begin with. It was early on in in that process. But one of the things that really attracted me about Justice Blackman, among others, was I thought that he hadn't made up his mind about every issue. I thought that he was really open to thinking about the right way to decide a case. And it, whether, I mean, obviously I was just gonna be the law clerk, he was gonna decide it how he wanted to, but it seemed that there was a real possibility for a rich discussion about what to do and to learn from how he weighed those various things. And I think that did turn out to be the case. You and I are old fashioned in this way, maybe. Um, I hope not. I hope it is the fashion still, but the idea that judges should actually approach a case with an open mind and read the briefs <laughs> and listen to the oral argument and uh, not just uh, sort of know how they're gonna go uh, when, when you tell them what the question is. After clerking, uh, you went to the State Department. You, you became an attorney advisor in the Office of Legal Advisor. Uh, so that, that's not customary, I don't think, for, for a Supreme Court law clerk or 
really for anyone. Uh, tell us why you did that and, and uh, what that experience was like. I see it as a, as a as fallout from what had made me interested in comparative literature, actually, to begin with. You know, I had a tremendous interest in international matters. Um, I had taken the trouble by that time. I started out learning Latin, then I learned French, then I learned German, and I later added Russian to that. Um, don't talk to me in any of those other than French right now, because I'm quite rusty. But, but, but I was just very interested in international matters. And the State Department seemed like a, a great place to go. And I have to say, to this day, um, when I have law clerks or students who have an international law interest, L, as they call it, the Office of the Legal Advisor, is a spectacular place to go. So what kind of issues uh, did a young lawyer like you work on? Do you, re do you remember? It's going oh, back some years. Vividly, vividly. <laughs> Actually, and, and this explains why I didn't stay at the Legal Advisor's Office too long. I never could quite clarify what my role was going to be with the person who was at that time Legal Advisor because having been a law clerk for two years, I was very eager just to be a line attorney and just kind of do the, the real work. I, you know, the policy stuff is fine, but I wanted to, to do that. I wound up a little bit of both, uh, but I got myself assigned to the economic business and commerce section of the, depart of the uh, legal advisor's office, which corresponds to that division in the State Department. And I began, <laughs> I began looking at a problem of international bridges, but my big issues were transfer of technology and negotiations in the UN Conference on Trade and Development about restrictive business practices, about intellectual property, and also uh, foreign corrupt practices. Because while I was at the department, um, Congress passed the first version of the US Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. All of those topics are, are highly relevant today. You were right there at the, at the beginning, I think. Um, so you were there for, uh, I think, a little over a year. Then you went into private practice for a couple of years in, in D.C. And then uh, you decided to become an, an academic. And you went first to Georgetown for a year. And then you, you came to Chicago where you, you flourished. And that was where your, your career has been at the University of Chicago. Uh, so what, what drew you into the academy? Again, I, I take it all the way back to, to the comp lit interest in a way. While I was at the Supreme Court, it's customary, or at least it was then, probably still is, for law schools to reach out to you. And I felt very firmly at that time that I wanted some experience before I started teaching. I, it seemed to me that that was a desirable thing. So when I went to Covington, which was the firm I went to, I had been there about six months and the person who was about to become dean at the university of chicago gerhard casper contacted me and said um i'd like to talk to you about teaching and i'm going to be in washington can i come see you so i thought sure you know you can you can come see me because this is in fact something i might want to do so gerhard came to my office and i actually interviewed at chicago that fall but told them I, that I just was concerned it was too early. I wasn't really going to get the experience if it was just six months and, and done. Uh, so they said, fine, you know, here's, here's your job offer and let us know when you're ready to start teaching. So as soon as I started teaching at Georgetown, uh, I was back in touch with them. I forget who called whom, but anyway, um, the, the rest is history, as you say, I, I moved after that one year to, uh, to the University of Chicago. So let's talk about your academic and teaching and scholarship interests. Tell us what they, they were and, and are and what it is that particularly engages you about those fields. Sure, well, I, I feel terrible because in some ways I was never able to really settle on just one thing because I had the two major interests. One of them, arising out of some of that work I had done at the State Department and also actually from other sources was this whole field of antitrust, uh, international trade, international antitrust, sort of how, how do the economies work and what are we doing? So I continue to find that fascinating. The other big interest, which I attribute to the fact that I was fortunate enough at the University of Texas to be a student twice of Charles Allen Wright, who was a giant in the field of 
federal procedure, federal courts. Many people may have, I don't know if anyone actually looks at physical books of Wright and Miller anymore, but um, he was absolutely great in that area. And I was just entranced by it and, and still, you know, it's something that I teach at the University of Chicago, just finished teaching the first year civil procedure class. I've done federal court seminars. So those two strands were really my two loves. And are, are today. Uh, and still are. Continue. Still are. Chicago, you know, this is this goes this goes back to my own uh, family, my my father. Uh, Chicago has this great um, history in applying economic uh, concepts to the study of law, and particularly to antitrust law. And was was that was that something you were interested in? I was interested in it, but in a contrary sort of way. I, I was worried that people had lost the great insight that Ronald Coase and Aaron Director and some of the real giants of the law and economics movement had begun with, which was maybe we ought to look at what firms are doing and why they're doing it and figure out which practices are beneficial, which are neutral, which are anti-competitive with a good solid empirical base. That's great. I was entirely in favor of that. But as time went on, at least as I perceived it, the quote law and economics movement began to assume away too many of the complexities of a real economy. Assume all customers are rational. Assume no business will ever engage in predatory pricing. Assume this and assume that. And I was disturbed at during that phase that, that, the, that they were overusing the economics or oversimplifying and that the world was actually a more complex place than that. In time, of course, the economics began to catch up with it. You began to get the game theory economics. People began to realize that strategic behaviors are possible. You know, I, I'm not criticizing what people are doing today, but there was this period in the middle that I, that I had some problems with. And the other thing I became concerned about, and this grew out of my interest in international antitrust, so I became quite familiar with the antitrust laws of other countries. They would call them competition laws, but whatever, those laws. And I began to wonder whether we were mistaking something that described the US economy well for an eternal truth. It seemed to me that we were making that mistake in a number of areas. And you could see it by looking at the counterexamples elsewhere. Yeah, that's very interesting. And after all, the Sherman Act was not drafted by a group of economists who were concerned mainly about consumer welfare, you know, as, as defined by economists. It was drafted at a particular time in our history when the trusts um, had become extremely large and there were all sorts of concerns about big business in effect, and it went well beyond uh, concerns about efficiency. So even just interpreting the, the Sherman Act in the way that courts have, which is to further uh, consumer welfare, that's, uh, it's a little bit of a leap. Um, it's it probably sensible in some respects, but it's a bit of a leap. Oh, I, I uh, think it is. I mean, you, I mean, there's actually a really interesting, fairly recent article in the Yale Law Journal about this, trying to go back to the legislative history. There are great studies of the legislative history, and it shows exactly what you said. Then in one of the most influential books ever, Robert Bork comes along and says, oh, let's cut through the clutter. This is really fundamentally all about consumer welfare as defined by economists. And he may not be wrong, may not have been wrong that it gave you a law that was easier to administer, but I'm not sure that it gave you the law that Congress actually passed. Yeah, that's interesting. So then you returned to DC in 1993, you'd been teaching for, I don't know, over a decade. And you went back uh, and you went into the antitrust division uh, of the US uh, Department of Justice and you were a deputy assistant attorney general. And you were in no surprise in, the, in, a, in an international section. Also, you had appellate and legal policy matters under your, in your portfolio. But so what were you doing and why did you do that? <laughs> well, this particular set of things just couldn't have been more tailor-made for what my interests were. And Ann Bingaman, who was the incoming attorney assistant attorney general for antitrust at that time, was very interested in raising the profile of the international work. And I had done 
by this time a lot of things in the international sphere. Probably the most well-known was a monograph that I wrote with an English uh, law professor, a man by the name of Richard Wish, studying eight particular mergers and acquisitions that had been reviewed by more than five or six countries, you know, to try to figure out how global business was actually dealing with this rather scattered set of antitrust authorities. And that had been just an amazing project to work on. So with that and other things, you know, I, I did two things with the international portfolio. One was at a policy level. So I represented the Department of Justice at the National Economic Council quite frequently. I um, represented the US at the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. I traveled all over the place to various capitals. Fortunately, I don't suffer from jet lag, so that, that wasn't a problem. Um, so it was really policy questions. Then also we had a number of really interesting international antitrust enforcement cases. Um, and so some products sound so old that you probably don't even know what they are anymore, but there was a plain paper fax, that smelly stuff that came off fax rolls, uh, cartel. There was a plastic dinnerware cartel of all things. We had the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, you know, raiding people in Canada for us. We had they're just a bunch of- They're plastic plates. <laughs> yeah, right. The little things that you'll take on a picnic and throw it away probably wastefully. Anyway, it was great. So that was the international side. Appellate, pretty obvious, you know, oftentimes we were the appellee, but I worked a lot with the Solicitor General for amicus briefs in the Supreme Court, other kinds of things of that sort. Legal policy was legislation and that sort of thing. I mean, this field is is still extremely hot. If you're a, a major American company, you're, you're probably a multinational company. And uh, certainly in the tech space, they are all subject to multiple regulatory agencies. Uh, the Europeans have been very aggressive. And I imagine that there are a lot of conflicts that come up. You, if you do one thing in one country, uh, it's against the law, but you're required to do it in another country. And it, it may be, I know this is true to some extent in, the, in your other field, civil procedure, because sometimes privacy laws in Europe are such that uh, to meet your discovery obligations in another country, you are actually violating some privacy rule in Europe. GDPR, that's you know, right. How do you see this? It's one of the things that I found most interesting about it because, and, and it's actually why I was always an opponent of trying to sit down and create some global antitrust code. There was a real movement afoot to do that during the years I was at the Justice Department and afterwards. But when you peel away the glittering generalities, you discover that the Europeans, never mind even other places, but the Europeans have a different idea of what to do with bigness, of what to do with dominant firms than we traditionally have done. I guess we'll see what Congress does, but their idea of dominance kicks in when a firm may have 30 or 35% market share. Whereas we still follow the old learned hand formula that it's not really a big problem until you have 70%. Well, it's a huge difference in perspective because they have an administrative structure they're more willing to micromanage what the very big firms are doing. And I, I don't really mean that as a pejorative, but they'll give you behavioral obligations, behavioral remedies, whereas we with a court-based enforcement system are very cautious about doing that as we should be, you know, because judges didn't become judges to be antitrust regulators. Um, so there, so that's just one example. There, there are many others and trying to find a middle ground is something that you've actually got to do case by case. Well, so uh, here you were in, in Washington in the in the antitrust division, and then I, I don't think you'd come back to Chicago yet when lightning struck, and in 1995, and you were appointed to the Seventh Circuit. So, what's the story there? How did that happen? I mean, I did think it was lightning striking, but I also, as it just happened knew a lot of people in the Clinton administration from one connection or another, it could be the University of Chicago, it could have been you know, other paths. I had done a lot of work with the bar. It was really the first time I allowed myself to think, you know, maybe I really could become a, a federal judge. And then I was helped by so many people. I mean, I just couldn't begin to say, but one of the key people was Anne, Anne Bingaman, who I mentioned before, 
who I was working for. And Anne and I were on a, one of these long, you know, 12 hour flights going to Tokyo to meet with the Japanese. And we were just chatting and Anne said, you know, what do you see for the long term? And I said, well, actually, you know, thinking big, I'd love to be on the Federal Court of Appeals. And whose husband was Jeff Bingaman, wasn't his Jeff Bingaman, who was at that time a senator from New Mexico. Anne just looked at me and she said, that would be great. I think this is going to be my project. <laughs> and so <I> was like, <laughs> fabulous. You know, I can't imagine a better, a better friend. Um, but over time, first, of course, we needed a vacancy, but then a vacancy did arise in the fall of 1994. Um, I was on this two-year leave of absence from the university. So I hadn't been planning on going anywhere until the summer of 95 anyway. But with, with an enormous amount of help from a lot of people and just accidents such as the fact that the White House counsel at that time for President Clinton was Abner Mikva, who was deeply from Chicago, who had very great connections with the University of Chicago, whom I knew. Um, and so just a lot of pennies dropped in the right way and it happened. Yeah, and Abner Mikva, just to, so students know, He'd been, a, he'd been a member of Congress for a very long time, but then he'd, he'd been on the D.C. Circuit where he had a, quite a distinguished career as a judge. And then late in life, he became White House counsel and, um, and did that. I, I knew him, too. He was, he was a great person. When your name starts to circulate as, as, as someone who might be a judge, um, you've, you've talked about part of how this happens. So you have to have help from a lot of people, and it really helps to have a champion like Ann Bingaman because there's so much you can't do for you yourself really it seems unseemly um but would you say you you run for it i mean how, how do you how do you sort of put those pieces together funny that you should put it that way because one of the things ab said to me as the process was unfolding is uh you know he, he always was quick with with a phrase and he said well diane this isn't something you can just stand for you have to run a little <laughs> so <laughs> what what he meant essentially is that you had to have people peppering the White House counsel's office with letters of support saying that they thought you would be a good person. And given when I was, you know, hoping that this might happen, it was a time as you will remember for sure, David, and others might, it was the election of 1994 that switched control of both houses of Congress to the Republicans. So instead of looking at a Democratic Senate Judiciary Committee, all of a sudden Orrin Hatch was chairing it. And so I remember thinking, who do I know who are Republicans? You know, can I get them to, you know, sort of say that this was going to be fine? And in fact, a great number of people I was very touched to see did. And I got some great advice from, from a woman I know in DC who said, you know, do whatever you can think of doing for this, because your threshold for what's over the top is so much lower than what the real top is that you should just, you know, if you think of it, you know, I had one crazy example. I had worked at Covington with Paul Tagliabue uh, doing some antitrust cases. Paul Tagliabue later wound up commissioner of the National Football League, which is what he was doing at the time I was being considered. And so I got in touch with Paul and I said, you know, how about it? You know, you want to write a letter to the White House? Paul said, sure, I'm glad to. <laughs> And, you know, crazy things like that actually draw people's attention. Well, I was a judge already when you were appointed. And I remember uh, how, how pleased I was, excited I was that you were coming onto the bench. You joined, you know, a very interesting court because you had two of your University of Chicago colleagues, uh, Republican appointees, Frank Easterbrook and, and Richard Posner, uh, both of whom had you know, huge reputations, uh, particularly, I mean, particularly Dick Posner is, you know, he's, he, he's a giant in the academy and um, was a very good judge. So what was that like? You had this, you had this pre-existing relationship with them mm -hmm. and now, and, and I think this is rather unusual, you know, it's hard to think of another circuit, maybe the second circuit, where you have uh, established academics going on to the bench um, in, you know, numbers. <laughs> Yeah, I think the Second Circuit is the only other one to, first of all, I thought it was great because thanks to the culture of the University of Chicago, you know, we were completely accustomed to talking with each other, to batting ideas around. Nobody minded if 
you didn't agree with the other person. In fact, that was almost a plus, you know, it meant that you could have, you know, a much better conversation. So I was, I looked forward to working with both of them. And certainly during all of the years, Dick was on the bench. It was just a pleasure. He's a public intellectual par excellence. And I could sit there and toss off, you know, a couple of pages of comments on an opinion he'd circulated. And he would carefully respond to each one. I agree with this. I don't agree with that. Or maybe, you know, here's the place where our paths vary. It was, it was great. I, I really loved it. Uh, Frank is the same. You know, Frank has a very different style from, from Dick's, but Frank and I are great friends off the bench. And, you know, that doesn't mean we agree on all things. Uh, we certainly don't, but we agree on plenty of things. And I think we agree on a process. We agree on the way the courts ought to run. So I thought it was terrific. And all three of you continued to do a little bit of teaching, I think, as well um, mm -hmm. at, at Chicago. Well, here it is. It's like it's more than 25 years later that you've been a judge. So what have what have you most enjoyed about being a judge and, and, and what have you least enjoyed? <laughs> well, certainly what I have most enjoyed is the opportunity from time to time to take a really hard problem and think my way through it. And on top of that, persuade my colleagues that the way I've thought through it is the right way to think about it. And there have been not a huge number, but there have been a not insignificant number of occasions in which I was on a panel, dissenting on the panel, and the in-bank court took the case, and the entire court, including the two panel members from whom I dissented, agreed with what I thought was the right way to do it. You know, and I thought this this comes from hard work, from thinking about what it is that the other side is concerned about, what's the answer to that, and also always having that atmosphere of mutual respect. You know, you don't just sort of slap something down on the table and say, that's it. You know, you, you invite conversation. Yeah, so that happened in a number of, of cases, and it's very gratifying to see it happen. You, you can't ask for it all the time. Um, and I like sitting on the day-to-day -day cases too, I have to say there are some types of cases that I would not weep if they went away. So one of my thoughts, I think this actually was in a, a 1990 project that the judiciary had launched. You must have been involved in this, right? To, to re-examine the federal courts. And it was actually called the Biden, you know, it was the Biden bill. <laughs> it was the oh, Senator Biden. Yeah, yeah, I was involved in that too, actually. But yeah. There was a 19, some 1990 um, investigation of things. and. One of the ideas was that appeals in social security disability cases, supplemental security income, disability benefits, which already go from the agency to the district court, and then they go to the court of appeals, all under a very deferential standard of review, all under a standard of review that requires you if there's substantial evidence upon which the administrative law judge relied, you're supposed to affirm, if it's possible to have too much due process, this is too much due process. And so my thought was, and others have said this too, fine, have the appeal go to the district judges and then have something like rule 23F or cert or something, you could ask the court of appeals to take the case if there was something just wildly off base, because of course the Supreme Court would never take a case like that. But it's a lot of work and there you are reading on for pages and pages about somebody's orthopedic surgery. And, and I just don't know what the value added is. That's interesting. I, well, I, I worked on a lot of those cases. So sure I, I, know what you, I know what you're talking about. Although, you know, obviously this goes without saying they're extremely important to the person who brings the case because it's, uh, it's, their, it's, it's their income. So from 2013 to 2020, so pretty recently, you were the chief judge of the Seventh Circuit. And that's, you don't get elected for that. You don't have to stand or run for that, that you get that by virtue of your seniority. But can you talk about that? It's a very important position. Um, can, you, can you talk about that and, and sort of how you did it? it? It is an important position. And actually Dick Posner had the greatest line about it. As, as you say, you don't get elected to it. You don't earn it in any fashion. He said that it was like uh, Banquo watching the progression of the kings of Scotland, you know, in advance, you know, unless somebody's hit by a bus or something, who the chief is going to be for really quite some time to come. 
So right now our chief judge is Diane Sykes. She'll be succeeded by Mike Brennan. Uh, and that's just the way the seniority works. And you know, unless Mike decides he's tired of being on the court or something, I can't imagine that happening. But in my turn, I became chief succeeding Frank Easterbrook. And I will note that the day I became the chief judge to Frank's great amusement, the government shut down uh, for one of those government shutdowns that we seemed to be having you know, during those years. So I spent the first two weeks of being chief on all sorts of lengthy phone calls with all of the other chiefs trying to figure out how long we could hang on uh, <laughs> before something drastic had to happen. Uh, luckily, Congress bailed us out around day 13 of that particular round. But it certainly taught me right away um, of the governance responsibility that chiefs have. And the chief judge and one district court representative from each circuit make up the judicial conference, as you well know. And that is the body that makes the policy for the federal courts and the budgets and all sorts of things. So that was tremendously important work and work that was really largely done not in Washington at the meetings, which were more confirmatory of what had gone on, but in the trenches, on the committees that the conference has. As you know, I was, before I became chief for six years on the Standing Committee on Rules of Practice and Procedure, part of my procedure love. I loved that committee. I thought it was really the, the greatest treat of my life to be on it. But I'd also spent some time in the International Judicial Relations Committee, which I thought was great. So once you're chief, you're right in the middle of that. The other thing that you do as chief is that you are the person who um, is the ultimate authority in the circuit. And that could be things as mundane as somebody needs to have new space, you know, or the, the courthouse in Rockford, Illinois is uninhabitable, which actually turns out to be true. And we had to go through all sorts of machinations to allow them to borrow some space across the river in Iowa, because somebody said, oh, but Iowa's in the Eighth Circuit. You know, how can the district court for the Central District of Illinois be over in the Eighth Circuit? So we solved that problem. Judicial conduct and disability began to take on a very high uh, profile during the years I was on the court because of some rather unfortunate incidents, a couple of them actually, not just one. And so I got the Seventh Circuit to revise its rules, actually even before the national um, rules were, uh, were looked at again. I had my share of very delicate cases because especially if it's an active judge, you don't have very many tools to work with. Uh, impeachment is possible and that did happen or at least the, up to the brink of impeachment then the person resigned, not in my circuit, but you know something I was involved with for the judicial conference. But you just have so few tools other than just persuasion and trying to get somebody to understand that it's time to go. Uh, and I would sharply distinguish between misconduct, which I saw much less of, uh, and disability, which because judges are humans, just like everybody else, you know, an older judge might begin to suffer from dementia or an older judge might be on medications that are necessary that just simply don't allow the job to be done as it should be. And those are, it's just part of life, and, but you still need to deal with it. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I was a chief judge in, um, in the district court in California and dealing with judges who are elderly and who, who need to retire, that is one of the most difficult parts of the job. And I wonder, um, you know, whether there should be some sort of age limit for, for judges. It's, it's contrary to the, the way things have moved and it pr probably would take a constitutional amendment. So maybe it's not all that practical, but you know, if you set it 75 or 78 or something of that sort, maybe even 80 in these days, it, it would give you some protection, I think. I, I, I would it. favor something like that. And I, at this stage of my life, I probably say that against interest. But again, I have this comparative perspective. Bob French, who used to be the Chief Justice of Australia, somebody I know well, and, you know, life went on. The Australians have a fine court system and their chief their judges and justices retire at a certain age. Richard Goldstone from South Africa, Nick Phillips from the UK, just so many examples. So I agree with you. If you just had a flat age limit, I think you would have to amend the constitution. There's the yep. more ambitious term limits proposal 
that you, you know, you're appointed as a justice and you serve as a justice for 18 years and then you start sitting on the courts of appeals, which would make it look like we were in the early 19th century when Supreme Court justices, in fact, sat on district courts or, you know, trial level courts. I shouldn't mess up the terminology, but that, that's a more intriguing thought. The people who wrote the Constitution didn't think that everybody was going to live to 90 and keep on, you know, serving as a judge because life expectancies just weren't that kind. You know, I was on the Supreme Court Commission and we looked at term limits and yeah. uh, it's a, it's intriguing but complex. It would take 52 years to implement for one thing. It does, I think, in the judgment of most people require a constitutional amendment. And it doesn't necessarily address the question we're talking about, which is are some of the health issues that are associated with advanced age. There are other complexities about it that aren't evident until you get into it rather sure. deeply. What a what a term limit would mean, but I, I'll just give you one. There's w one proposal is 18 years, another proposal is 12 years. Take the 12-year proposal. That would mean that a two-term president would appoint six justices to the Supreme Court, and that sixth justice would be appointed before the president had served out the second term. So that's fairly extraordinary. You have to have a lot of faith in the stability of our system, I think, before you would say, oh, yes, we're ready to have uh, it, not just a majority, but a overwhelming majority of our court appointed by a single president. So here you are, you're eligible now to take senior status and you can, I, I think you're planning to do that. Students may not know that's a, it's not retirement actually, it just means that uh, the president can appoint another judge and then you get to decide how much work you wanna do. I think you can do anywhere from a quarter to a hundred percent, but somebody with your wide range of interests, you, it would give you the ability you know, the focus a little bit different. And I know that you're a, a very good oboe and English horn player. So I'm wondering whether maybe if you take senior, you'll be able to do more music. What are your thoughts? Point one, I am planning on taking senior status. I informed the president upon the confirmation of my successor, which is the formula most people seem to be using these days uh, and, and did in the Trump administration as well. I'm not saying that it's, it's anything unique to this time. So the one thing that you significantly lose by being a senior judge is your ability to participate in the in-bank court. You do not have any voice in which cases will go in-bank, and you do not sit in the in-bank court unless you were on the panel whose work is being now, uh, somebody's taking another look at that work. I'm fine with that. You know, I've been a judge for a long time. Out of the 25, 2600 cases or so that the Seventh Circuit gets every year. At the most, we actually sit in a live and bank for about four of them. Uh, and then maybe there are another 16, you know, maybe there's a group of 20 from which the four is going to come. Um, but the courts of appeals all really do their work through panels. And so I think in the end, you're, you're still very involved. Oh, yeah. And you're so highly regarded, you know, I, I think you continue to feel very much a part of the court. Um, oh yeah, in fact, we, in the Seventh Circuit, we abolished the title senior judge. So if you look at any of our opinions, it'll just say, you know, Ripple comma circuit judge with somebody else. And, and Ken Ripple has been a senior judge for many years at this point, because we've said, unless the statutes force us, we, we, everyone is, is a member of the court, period. So we're getting into the lightning round here, and I have some <laughs> questions about sort of more, more fundamental things. I'll try to be very succinct. <laughs> Let's see how much we can get through. Okay. Do you, do you have a judicial philosophy? Well, you told me you were going to ask me that question, and I think I do. Um, it probably comes closer to what Steve Breyer has expressed in, in some of the books that he's written at the constitutional level where it seems to me it's important in our democracy to understand that Congress is a co-equal branch of government and to follow legislation rather than sit there and, and, and maybe impose constitutional limits. I would give you healthcare as an example. It really makes me very uncomfortable to think that close to 20% of the national economy might have been declared off limits as not affecting interstate commerce in the right way. So I like the idea of leaving it in Congress's hands. And if, if a different Congress comes up with something that repeals the Affordable Care Act, so be it, you know, let, let them do it. Uh, that's, that's their job. 
I hope they don't, but personally, but, but that's up to them. So, so I have that in mind. I do also certainly share some of the, the, the pragmatism and the importance of facts perspectives that we talked about at the outset from Judge Goldberg and Justice Blackman. I think that's really critical. Everybody wants to know about you know, original intent versus some sort of evolving constitution. My view, and I'm not sure what label to put on this, is that the people who wrote the constitution were very smart people. And when they wanted to create an open-ended standard-based rule, they did. And when they wanted to create something very specific, i.e., you know, the president must be 35 years old, or there will be no titles of nobility, they did. And we don't see a lot of litigation over those rather specific things. We do see litigation over the squishy ones about like what's due process or what's cruel and unusual punishment. So I think you know you follow the signal of the actual language that was used and sometimes it is more of a standard and sometimes it's more of a rule. Uh, you mentioned Justice Fryer and he's been uh, trying to make the case to the American people, um, I hope effectively, that judges are not politicians. And by that, I think he means uh, both that they aren't partisans, so they don't actually identify any longer with the party of the president who appointed them. They don't feel that it's their job to advance that party or that president or the, that president's successor. And also that they don't decide cases politically in the sense of imposing their own policy preferences where Congress has other preferences or uh, the constitution does. Do you generally agree with that? Because you're also an academic and academic don't share that view uh, of judging by and large, uh, unfortunately. I don't know whether academics share that view of, of the academic enterprise, but in any event, <laughs> right. uh, when it comes to judging, they think uh, they see politicians in robes. Well, it's tough um, because what I worry about is that we get wrapped up in labels. Every, any judge I know, and I know a lot of judges, um, would certainly say that they are not a judge of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, you know, trying to follow the party's platform down the line. I certainly don't think that way about myself. On the other hand, people do recognize that there are competing theories of interpretation. There are competing approaches even to something as fundamental as to whom should the courts be open? You know, what do you think of standing? What do you think of justiciability? What do you think of uh, private rights of action and statutes? You know, and I guess you can call that your judicial philosophy and people do follow their judicial philosophy. But if you like, I, I love Venn diagrams. And if you think of the Venn diagram of judicial philosophy and politics, I think there's some overlap. And, and I think that we're kidding ourselves if there isn't. I think it's a great aspiration to have. And I think judges need to be very careful about how they explain themselves and the tone, because when it gets a little too, too rough and ready, then, then it does invite the public to think, oh, it's just some committee, you know, it's just some group of partisans. I hope, I hope that we do better than that, though. You know, another topic that I know you're quite interested in is um, this question of specialty courts. Um, Federal judges, by and large, are generalists, but we do have we have the patent, we have the federal circuit, and, and we have a few other courts that are that are specialized. And the special courts in the state system are quite common. And you've written on this. Uh, so, what are your views on this? Right. So, in my writings, I have defended the general rule that federal judges are are, are not specialized. Um, and in fact, I wrote an article that was widely perceived as critical of the federal circuit. The federal circuit's a little different from say a specialized family law court at the state level or a specialized trusts and estates court. They're, they're a hodgepodge court. They, they have certainly the patent jurisdiction. They have international trade law. They have government employee appeals and there's no link among those things. They're just topics that Congress decided we want one court to be doing this. And so there's the federal circuit and it turned out to be the one court. I find myself that being a generalist allows me to draw connections across fields. Certainly most of procedure is, is that way. And it's interesting to see some of the cases the Supreme Court has taken from the federal circuit about you know just clear error 
review apply here? Or is it an abuse of discretion? Or is it de novo? And these are things we're so familiar with in the general courts. I don't deny at all that life is complicated. And I actually, by accident, happen to have a really core patent case that somehow escaped the limits of the federal circuit's jurisdiction uh, about um, sex determination of the offspring of cattle and how you could sort uh, and stuff. And it was, I mean, it was fascinating. I loved it. Um, but I would certainly say it took a lot of work to feel that I was getting up to speed on it. Well, what about collegiality? Do you have any concern that in that we have a what feels like a divided society and rhetoric sometimes runs high, particularly on the internet? Do you sense on a multi-member court that, that some of this is seeping into your interactions? And does that if if so, does is that a concern? Well, it was one of my top priorities as chief judge to do everything I could think of doing to foster collegiality on the court. And that was a time when our court, which had shrunk down to seven judges, we're supposed to have 11, uh, in very short order, got four new judges, all of whom were appointed by President Trump. Now, then we lost one and gained one because Amy Barrett went to the Supreme Court. But the other three, Amy came in November of 2017, three came in May of 2018. And then when Amy went to the court, we had her replacement in about two weeks um, in November of 2020. So it was, it was critical you know, to, to welcome them to the court, to encourage them to see the court the same way the rest of us had, you know, that we're in this common enterprise. I did a, an article years ago looking at the rates of dissents at the Court of Appeals and separate opinion writing, and it's actually quite low. It's only about three or 4%. The Seventh Circuit is the same. The Supreme Court is 10 times that. But of course, they're choosing the hardest cases. So it's different if you have mandatory jurisdiction. But I clung to that figure saying, look, there are so many opportunities to work together. Fine. They're going to be the cases where we're not going to be together. And, you know, you'd like to have people agree with you. But I'm pretty happy with where we managed to land in the Seventh Circuit. And my hope is that people are, are taking this as one of the core values of the circuit. There have been instances around the country where feelings have run high and, and courts have kind of lost that for a period of time, but it's really worth working on hard. Well, we didn't get to civic education and access to justice, which I know are both important topics and, and close to your heart. We'll have to get you back for another <laughs> judgment call. Because uh, you have so much to contribute and you're so insightful. What a joy to have you uh, with us today. You know, you are, you're a national treasure. You're, you're one of the great judges of our time. And the bridge that you have to the academy, the, the work that you did in the department, it seems like it all uh, came together to prepare you for uh, your, you know, 25 plus years in the judiciary. And that's uh, been to our national benefit so much. We only scratched the surface on your many contributions because you've been on many boards and you've contributed widely. Thank you so much for all that you've done and for all that you you will do. Thanks to everyone for joining us today uh, for this edition of Judgment Calls. I'm David Levy. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. Thank you very much. Too kind. Judgment Calls is produced by the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke University. Find us online at judicialstudies.duke.edu. Thank you.